Welcome to This Week in the Warner Archive Collection, where we discuss our newest releases. I'm George Feltenstein, and I'm proud to be joined by my colleagues, Matt Patterson and D.W. Ferranti. We have eight scintillating cinematic selections, that's a lot of S's and C's, returning to DVD courtesy of the Warner Archive Collection this week, four from Paramount, four from Warner Home Video, all coming to you from Warner Archive Collection as eight films go back in print on DVD and we bring them to you. We're going to run them down for you. Gentlemen. Well, we've got four Fright Fests coming courtesy of Paramount, paired up with four classic films from back in the Warner Brothers library, both MGM and uh, four classics from back in the vaults from both MGM and Warner Brothers. The films are, of course, Matthew? Targets, 1968. Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell, 1971. Lady in a Cage, 1964. Let's Scare Jessica to Death, 1971. Hallelujah, 1929. David Copperfield, 1935. Marie Antoinette, 1938, and His Majesty O'Keefe, 1954. And Michael O'Keefe is not in that movie. Is he, it is not he? the great Santini I, tribute film. I'm going to say yap to that. <laughs> Let's start with an homage to an homage to an amazing breakthrough first film from one of the most important directors of the 1960s, 70s, 80s, and, and forward. Peter Bogdanovich, uh, his first feature film, Targets, which starred Boris Karloff, and Bogdanovich had been an esteemed film critic and film writer. He had been a writer on classic cinema and had had interviewed many of the great directors of the golden era, and this was his first film, and of course he'd go on to make what I call his golden triumvirate, Last Picture Show, followed by What's Up Doc, followed by Paper Moon, 1971, 72, 73, amazing. But Targets really showed us that this was a new filmmaker with great promise who delivered. I mean, it's an amazing film, and it's an amazing debut, and it's also, you know, Bogdanovich is DNA in cinema. Like those three films you mentioned, each one clearly pays tribute to the cinema of the past, but being very much of its era. Of its own. Bogdanovich was able to make his debut thanks to the encouragement and assistance of Roger Corman, who not only gave him 20 minutes of the terror to play with, but helped get Karloff on board, and then in turn the the vision of Bob Evans brought at the Paramount. Right, because this was, uh, the DNA in this is from independent cinema. And Absolutely. this is a very independent voice. You know, and obviously now, fans now would recognize like Tarantino kind of coming through this because this is a very modern, you know, like postmodern take on filmmaking and what the relationship of the history of film has on current society 1968. And Paramount was going through a really transitional period at this point. And to clarify my earlier point, which I tangentialized, unlike Bogdanovich's later films, this film is actually a really prescient film. Yes. Because it, you know, this film is art house and grindhouse. Yep. Yes. And this film very much ahead of its time in that the entire run of mainstream and drive-in horror in the 70s all takes off the targets because yep. this film recognized the American transition from boogeyman to serial killer. And when Targets was already recognized in the early 70s yeah. as a motivating film for young filmmakers. Yeah. The sting of the bullets hurts just as much today. But this was made in 67 
and released in 68 the same year that yeah. assassinations and stuff. I mean, well, it was inspired by Whitman, huge. but unfortunately it was also a precursor to Zodiac, Son of Sam, and all that and, other. Every, let's talk about uh, just a little bit of the story because we've been sort of talking around it. It opens as a classic, almost uh, well, a Corman horror picture, right? And then the central character, played by Boris Karloff, is a Karloff-esque actor about to retire who's sick of the whole thing and wants to end his career. The studio wants to keep him on board, but he's very insistent. And then meanwhile, we also track a similar intersecting story of a young executive who is going crazy and he likes to collect weapons and decides to kill a lot of people. And thus, there's an incredible intersection of the plots at the end. Fake boogeyman ends up confronting real psychotic. Yeah. And then, you know, we really have to look at this as in the context of 45, 46 years later, Mm -hmm. what was unimaginable then, and unfortunately there, as Matt was indicating, there were some very... uh, prominent assassinations that followed the making of this movie, but the horrific mass murders that have happened in recent society. Oh, yeah. This film speaks to crazy people getting a hold of weapons at a time when nobody was really dealing with it. And also, in a very moving way, trying to get people to confront that fear. Right. So I think this film was available on DVD very briefly. It went away. And that's why, as, as we're bringing back the Paramount Library, as we're bringing back our own library of things that were available and then quickly disappeared, the Paramounts really quickly disappeared. So Targets was only available for a very brief time. A lot of people have been wanting it and uh, had paid outrageously high prices to get a copy. It's, now it, we can make it It's available. essential it's, it's, viewing yeah, I mean, if it, you're a fan. It's an essential American movie, and it's also one of Karloff's great performances in a career that was strewn with great performances. And, yeah. and this was right at the end, right? I think he yeah. had the Sorcerers. I think Sorcerers, and that was it. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, this is second to last or close to, I mean, this is one of his he final. Was, he was very frail, so and, it's post And unlike Orlock in the film, <laughs> Boris wanted to keep working. Oh, he yeah. He never wanted to stop. Oh, what a great climax, and I'm not going to ruin anything. So the next <laughs> film we're going to talk about is sort of similar. Matt was saying this earlier, so I'm going to let Matt make the point. Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell, although it's the uh, with Peter Cushing, it's a hammer horror, is the kind of movie that was being commented on in Targets. It, it, exactly. These movies were now also becoming out of fashion. You know, like by 1971... This was the last. This was really toward the end of the line. Then we also have available through Warner Home Video, Dracula AD 1972, which this is the downhill hammer period before its resurgence and rising. Out of the two classic hammer franchises, Frankenstein goes out on a much higher note than than Dracula. And sadly, Terrence Fisher's last film, who is a great hammer director, great British director, it's a good film in with both uh, Peter Cushing's performance and how it really, if you watch all of the Cushing Frankenstein movies, the real monster from hell right. is yes. Dr. Frankenstein. Yes. We've talked a lot about end of franchises, and this has a fun passing of the torch. Really, the whole picture is a passing of the torch. And, you know, a lot of people, when they see these films, much like, let's say, talk, we talked about the last of the Andy Hardy movies, they're like, oh, there wasn't more? That's too bad. But at the but really, these types of, of endings, these passing of the torches, 
are symbolic that the story continues on. Although with Frankenstein movies, you tend not to want a torch to get past. Yeah, that's usually true. Held by a villager, <laughs> unless he's uh, uh, the the head of the uh, the police and has a crazy <laughs> arm. <laughs> now let's go back to the 1960s. But wait, just one quick note for Star Wars fans. Oh yeah, the monster and monster from hell is played by David Prowse, who would later don the cloak of Darth Vader. We, and that's so we've true. got the uh, Grand Moff. Yes, and gra- that's right. The two of them. I never thought about that. That's right. That's probably why Cushing had that little twinkle in his eye in his scenes with Darth, because he knew who was under that helmet. Yeah. So the, the next film goes back a few years to 1964. It's Lady in a Cage. And thanks to the huge, unprecedented, and unexpected success of Betty Davis and Joan Crawford and whatever happened to Baby Jane, yeah. these grand guignol horror-esque thrillers with actresses from the golden age of Hollywood assuming leading lady roles ended up becoming quite prominent in Hollywood. You had films like Betty Davis was in Dead Ringer for Warner Brothers. Joan Crawford did William Castle's Straight Jacket. And Olivia de Havilland stars in Lady in a Cage. But Lady in a Cage is not your average cheap thriller. I think it's a really good movie. It's It's a great psychological thriller. I saw this movie as a young child, and whenever I would go to, like, an older uh, house or apartment building that I wouldn't get in the the elevator, so let's just say that. Old school elevators terrified. Um, I was talking to Dan about how I had the opposite problem. I I knew a kid in middle school who didn't have an elevator, but he had an elevator shaft in his building. And that was terrifying because we would... There was no elevator. Yeah, we'd open the the door and then throw stuff down there. My goodness. Well, uh, (laughs) we have to mention that this film gained notoriety a little later because... With the unexpected success and final rise to stardom of James Caan when he was in The Godfather, everybody started to look back at his earlier work when he was trying to make it as an actor, and he plays an evil, 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 evil yes. he's villain. So great. He's he's terrific in this movie. Fans of the podcast should keep their eyes peeled for Anne Southern. I was going to oh, say yeah. there are no hats involved. There are no hats but, involved. Uh, but. Uh, older Maisie. Basically what happens is this is a a large house in Los Angeles. This is a very Los Angeles story, by the way, as well. And it was interesting because you grew up in Boston and the houses. Like, watching this now, having lived in L.A. for a long time, this just reminded me of, like, the Mid-Wilshire district. Oh, yeah. You know? Like, because you have these grand old houses and then these apartment buildings. The city at this time was going through a great transition, which became even worse, you know, five, six years late. Well, two, two years later were the riots. And this is an urban horror story. Lady gets in a cage, the elevator, power goes out halfway down, nobody comes to her help. The city, she could be, and this was, like I was saying to Dan, this reminded me of a zombie movie. Right, and it plays to the same beats that Romero hits on in Night of the Living Dead because these films are actually about fears of class breakdown. And she's stuck in the cage, she sets an alarm, and you see the people just walking by. Everyone ignores her. Nobody cares. The only people who care are uh, a bum who stumbles upon this new treasure trove, and then he passes the information along, thus ending up with you know, the little fish getting eaten by bigger and bigger fish. Right. It's home invasion upon home invasion upon yeah, home invasion. It's just so layered and, and so great. people don't talk about this film. No, they it's don't. I mean, really it's like, yeah. it should. And it should be. I mean, Baby Jane, great film, but, you know, so's Lady they, in a Cage. This, this, this is far more scary. Yes. It's f- I mean, yeah. there's no rat on a dinner plate. It's much more disturbing. And it has Hong Kong fooey. 
<laughs> yes, it certainly does. Who has been in other horror films? Uh, Scatman's the man. Uh, you know, like there are so many angles that tie, you know, like tie this all together when you watch it, and it keeps resonating. And an astounding climax. So we should all decide that why don't well let's scare Jessica to death. Okay, now I have to <laughs> say, how many times did you watch this film on TV, Matthew? Growing up, I will tell you none. Ah, Zero. George, probably ten. Yeah, yeah, yeah it was, was on forever. Ten always, oh, and it was. I'll go out and look for some more. Somebody might have hit on this, but I've never seen people, in my opinion, correctly place this film as a Lovecraftian horror movie. Oh, that's... It's very gothic. It's, yeah. it's super... Oh, yeah. There's so much... It's, it's like little bits. Like It's sort of like a modern shadow over Innsmouth. I mean, a woman goes to a town. There's something weird going on. You never quite get a handle of it. You never know. And the horror overwhelms and destroys you, but you never know what's going now, on. It's interesting because Lady in a Cage, now, by the way, I did catch up with this on VHS later, but okay. the horror in this is a, uh, the opposite of Lady in a Cage horror because Lady in a Cage is isolation within of a sea of people. This is true isolation. It's on it an island. Pure alienation plus isolation. And big house, in a way, same setup, but and they're trapped in this environment and they have no idea what's going yeah, on. Yeah, it's like straw dogs, but a psychotic nightmare. <laughs> well, <and laughs> or is it, it in her around, head? Around right. At the same time, which is, which is very interesting. This is a film that has developed a very rabid cult following, which is what ended up with Paramount having put it out on DVD of, uh, many years ago because fans were demanding it, but those fans were limited and it was taken out of print. So now we bring it back in print. Dan, let's talk about the creative people involved, the director, the cast. The film was directed by John Hancock, who also worked on the screenplay under a pseudonym. Yes. yes. And John Hancock was not the pseudonym. <laughs> he, he signed it Larry, though. And then the film stars Zora Lampert, Barton Heyman, Kevin O'Connor. You know, this is a typical low-budget horror. These people are what we were told in college were known as working actors. These people have yeah. great credits, but they were not famous names. They were always working. And, that's a, and they did a great job in telling the story of the movie. What's interesting, again, about, uh, and especially this kind of film, and as people, you know, horror fans know later on, a lot of times... You don't need a famous person to sell the horror no. because no, it's even better. It becomes I mean, it's you. Like, like, yeah, exactly. You're not distracted you, by who that's what you, makes the film there. work. You're, you're, you're not, you, especially a film like Let's Scare Jessica Dust, which purposely doesn't let you in on what's going on because it's a nightmare. It allows you to spend your disbelief more because you know that's not a movie star. That could be you, which is exactly it's you if you're a hippie who drives a hearse. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, the first time I saw this film as a too young child, didn't you want a hearse? <laughs> I got to the end of the film and you're really leveled. You're and scared then, to death. Yeah, and then you know because I was young, I would watch it again and again and again, uh, thinking this time I'm gonna figure it out. And uh, finally, you get old enough to go, you can't figure out horror. The next issue of horror is the horror of having a film masterpiece unavailable on DVD. Oh, yes. And that fate had befallen King Vidor's breakthrough, 1929 early talkie, hallelujah. But hallelujah indeed, the film is now back in print. And this really remarkable movie, which stars Daniel L. Haynes and Nina Mae McKinney with original music by Irving Berlin and a, a special DVD that also carries some very rare early MGM shorts is now available again on DVD from Warner Archive Collection. And um, King Vidor 
was constantly challenging the MGM management to let him make different kinds of movies. And the fact that he took cameras into the deep south and filmed on location when the technology was brand new and MGM was like the last of the feature studios the big studios to embrace sound that he would do this spoke to the fact that he was such it, a groundbreaker that this is quite an embracing of sound because they were doing sound yeah. on location yeah. right it, yeah. it was it was not just a new technology that they were doing but it was a this was a different format this was a totally. new so totally original that it takes you a minute to realize that the a little bit of the creakiness in it is because it's 1929. Yeah. It doesn't seem like I mean, anything else from 1929. And, 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 uh, I understand that MGM had just gotten the technology to start working in sound within the year. And yeah, then you yeah. think like like Vitor's like, okay, we're going to invest all this technological right. money in this brand new epic film with. An all African American cast in 1929. I mean, it's very revolutionary. Original songs contributed by Irving Berlin. And Nina Mae McKinney is a remarkable performer. Uh, She did show up in shorts. And again, there was a segregated cinema, a separate cinema. There were uh, films made for African American audiences by African American filmmakers and shown in different theaters. The fact that a major studio would back a film like Hallelujah spoke to Thalberg's confidence and L.B. Mayer's confidence in King Vitor. And, and I would say that she is actually the protagonist of the film oh, yeah. because it's yeah. all about the battle for her soul. And she's a very naughty lady. And just to be very clear, this was made for general audiences. Like oh, yeah. it was, This yeah. was intended for everyone. Like the other less interesting NGM films, it's also... You know, you see that leavening of Louis' need for high morality in this stuff. Well, it's pre-code. It's preachy (laughs) pre-code. And interestingly enough, the film was reissued later on, which is why the main titles look like they were done in the late 30s because in fact they, they were, were. Oh, the original main titles are, are were changed and and what we have is what survives the sound films from 1929 are known for a, a camera that doesn't move yeah and this camera moves and the it fact does? that he took cameras and sound equipment into these rural areas well, really it, is astounding to i me. mean i was watching it i was like she must have made this after safe in hell and then I looked at it and I was like, oh, no, this was like three well, years ahead of the, it. Yeah. You know, this wasn't a singing in the rain silent film. Mm-hmm. I mean, I said early sound film. You know what I mean? Like it, it, Although there is rain and there is singing. But you know what I mean? Like, the, you know, because everybody always kind of makes fun of this era for its staginess and this just. Right. On viewing it, if you didn't know and you know stuff about films, you wouldn't have guessed 1920. No way. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, with the exception that it's silent. You know, you watch a film like The Big Parade and you feel like you're watching a modern movie. And let's just give a little plug for Warner Home Video that The Big Parade, King Vidor's masterpiece, is coming out on Blu-ray this fall. And uh, The Big Parade led to Vidor's basically uh, ability to make almost any film he wanted for the studio. And the studio would let him make small films like The Crowd without any stars at all in 1928, which is the tale of a common man. And then he made Show People, which was Marion Davies' big budget. So he alternated, but what an amazing talent. Thalberg is really the key factor in why Hallelujah was made. And Thalberg was diminishing his role at MGM in 1935 
when David O. Selznick had come over to the studio to start producing and David Copperfield is a David O. Selznick production made at MGM before Selznick started his own independent production company and that is the next returning to print DVD that we're discussing today and this was a huge success that made a star out of young Freddie Bartholomew as David Copperfield as the young David Copperfield and is notable that uh, MGM borrowed the talents of W.C. Fields from Paramount on the recommendation of Charles Lawton which I thought was fascinating W.C. Fields is one of his greatest performances because they actually allowed him to act yes yes. (laughs) in real life fields was was a huge dickens fan so you know he approached mike hubber with the right combination of his own comic sensibilities and the part this is a wonderful film edna may oliver so many talented basil rathborn playing a scoundrel he's so (laughs) he scared me as a kid i saw this movie as a kid (laughs) so good terrified me and it was before i had seen robin hood and i knew how evil he could be in that also and elsa lanchester's in the film for a blink of an eye but she's fantastic in that blink i mean there's so many good performances and it's such a, you know, big and, story. And out of David Copperfields, this is considered probably the first true adaptation. Yeah, and yeah, I think it's still close. the best one because there were lots of them yeah, made I for would. TV and, and in <laughs> you, other... You can speak of David Copperfields almost as a genre. Yes. <laughs> and this has nothing and to do Twist, with magicians. But, but this one has Lionel Barrymore and Connor oh, yeah. O'Connor and Maureen O'Sullivan and Freddie Bartholomew is fantastic in it. And... I could just watch the, the W.C. Field sequences over and over. It's and and so indeed, good. that's the beauty of DVD. You can go right to that sequence Ooh. and, and it's chapter, chapter it. So. Oh, and you'll like this, Matthew, because yes. you'll know who I'm talking about. Arthur Treacher has a walk-on. With his fish? No fish. A lot of people know Arthur Treacher from his the fish and chips restaurant, or older people know him from being on the Merv Griffin Show, but he had supporting roles in about 100 movies. He's the guy that steals David's money. See, I approached it as I knew him as the guy who had fish and chips and then discovered well, he was that's the actor. meal you cannot make at home. <laughs> it it certainly know. wasn't. It's kind of like Tim Hortons. Now, I thought it was a donut guy. This <laughs> was a big budget picture and really in the MGM house style and uh, a huge, huge success. The next film follows, again, in a historical setting, but is from three years later, 1938, and stars Norma Shearer. Uh, as Marie Antoinette. And this was a film made under rather tragic circumstances. Norma Shearer was the wife of MGM Wunderkind production chief Irving Thalberg, who died somewhat unexpectedly. And I say somewhat because he always lived in fear of death, which is what drove him to achieve what he did at such a young age. And he was planning to produce this film. Uh, with his wife, Norma Shearer, and he passed away. And uh, she left the screen in mourning for a while. And this marked her triumphant return to the screen. And this was a big budget picture. Enormous, the sets, the costumes are, are unbelievable. And MGM borrowed Tyrone Power from Fox because he was the hottest leading man. I, mean, I don't think they could have used... Robert Taylor. I don't think they could have used Clark Gable. They needed somebody who had a little bit of a more 
Frenchy. Uh, yeah, and it, and 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 <laughs> he's Softer. wonderful in yeah. in this Frenchy. film. And have to give a shout out also to Robert Morley. He's so very good. He's young. So good. Robert Morley, yeah. a heartbreaking performance. And I would say one of the most sympathetic portraits of the French royalty ever made by an American. Well, and and company. this is interesting because this is three years after they made *A Tale of Two Cities*. Yeah. So they yeah. told it from it's both the sides, but. Yeah. Norma Shearer is the grand dame yeah. of MGM, the first lady of MGM. And Joan Crawford used to joke, you know, well, well Norma gets all the best parts because she sleeps with the boss, you know. Uh, but <laughs> This shows that that's not the case. Well, and I, I, Norma Shearer has been unjustly unappreciated in my view. Well, I was going to say there was just a, just a comment that somebody made online in reference to how it's too bad that she's only known for parts like Marie Antoinette. And yes, it is too bad that people don't know how varied and wide her career was. Yeah. But it's not too bad she's known for Marie Antoinette because she's fantastic in this she, movie. She is, and I think the film is great. Super and the expectations and the budget, they were so high. There is a premiere film on the disc called Hollywood Goes to Town, which shows the premiere of the film at the Carthay Circle, the now oh. unfortunately lost yeah. Carthay Circle Theater, which was replaced by a very ugly four-story yes. office building. Uh, if you go to the Carthay Circle area in Wilshire and San Vicente, you can see this very kind of plain office building that replaced this great movie palace where Gone with the Wind opened there, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs opened there, 2001 A Space Odyssey, I believe, was the last film to play there before it met the Wreckers Ball. But we're lucky that we have movie palaces here in Los Angeles, whereas as an ex-New Yorker, I lament the fact that all the New Ooh. York movie palaces are gone with the exception of Radio City Music Hall. But the loss of the Carthay Circle, if you talk to people who live in L.A., they speak with great pain because it was a wonderful place to see a movie. And it was where studios loved to hold premieres if they weren't doing it in Westwood or at the Chinese. So MGM filmed the premiere of this movie and the uh -huh. premiere footage is on the disc. But it's a weird surviving print that we have because it only has – it doesn't have any music. It just has – narration. We're lucky that any of these things yeah. survive at all and the fact that MGM's preservation program in the 60s was anything nitrate that's still on the shelf preserve it and so Hollywood Goes to Town was preserved but it was like an unmixed audio track that we had to use and uh -huh. that was used on the Laserdisc and now on this DVD but it really shows you what a big send-off they were doing for this movie. Unfortunately, it didn't perform at the box office to expectations. And you see in the trailer, they go, now at popular prices, you don't have to wait to see it. <laughs> the reserve seat engagements were canceled, and they just said, let's just get it out well, into the hinterlands. In all fairness, 1938 wasn't a safe year to release anything. No, because it was just before 1939. Yes. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, they were making great films that year, and this is really a film that's worth Reacquaintance, and if you only know the story of Marie Antoinette from the Sofia Coppola film, yeah. this is a very different <laughs> approach to the material, but it's highly recommended. Now, lastly, we move to 1954 and Warner Brothers and the astounding athleticism of the wonderful Burt Lancaster, I, another Oscar winner. I just wanted to say, because you were talking about the extras on the previous disc, on, on this next disc, didn't you put a, a Warner Night at the Movies yes. together with yes. this? So, George, what is a Warner Night at the Movies? Warner Night at the Movies was something that was initially hatched 
I believe, on, on VHS tapes very briefly in the early 80s, but the concept was to take a newsreel and a short and a cartoon and recreate what it used to be when you went to the movies. And this was tried on a couple of video cassettes and dropped. We rebooted, if you want to say, uh-huh. the concept in 2003 for our Warner Legends releases of two disc sets of Adventures of Robin Hood, Treasure Sierra Madre, and Yankee Doodle Dandy, where we took short subjects and trailers and cartoons and recreated what it would be like to have a Warner night at the movies. And it was so successful that we started doing it on most of our DVD releases. And His Majesty O'Keefe indeed provides that 1954 viewing experience. And they were all from 54 because we had a cartoon, then we had a comedic short, and then boom, into the feature. Yeah, I was... I was and am a giant fan of the Warner Night of the Movies. When it's when they started doing it in two thousand three, long before I knew people behind it, I was <laughs> I was in my living room, re- yelling at people, going, you got "These guys yeah. know what they're doing. This I, is what you." That's be why I, I brought it up because yeah, it was fun, fun to, it really to see is. that, and it really puts these films in a deeper context. Right, right, because you're you're going out to a night at the movies. It's the movie palace recreated. Now, speaking of context, before we get into His Majesty O'Keefe, oh my. In the first fight scene that Burt Lancaster has, I gotta ask this question. Uh huh. Why does he take off his belt? Was that <laughs> a don't... thing men did? Like take off their belts before getting into fights? Well, you know, a belt could be used as a weapon. His Majesty O'Keefe stars Burt Lancaster. Okay. It is based on a true story. South Seas. Um, about a man who really had an empire in the South Seas for 30 years. This tells about his rise to that empire. It's also a very interesting film in much like the real life O'Keefe. This film's strength is its sympathy to native peoples and cultures. Yes. Yeah. Burt Lancaster is really the well. There's that's not true. There are two good white people in this film, but the rest of the supporting cast and the rest of the the people that you care about are either Native Islanders or the Chinese in yeah, San Francisco. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, and then all the rest of the Anglo's are portrayed. And I think that is reflective way. of the gentleman who Burt Lancaster was right. in real life because. He produced films that he was not in, Marty being one of the most famous in 1955, and so he won an Oscar as producer of The Best Picture. He had a social conscience. Yeah. And his fame grew kind of rapidly, so he put uh, some thought into the films that he was making and had a creative input into the films he was making from 1950 onward. Yeah, and if you look at the list of what his production company put out, it's very interesting. This is very clearly a very literary, very thoughtful person. He was quite an amazing individual as well as a talented actor and producer. And by being placed in the South Seas, you know, it's 1954, not, you know, 10 years before a lot of American servicemen (laughs) had gone through the South Seas. You know, the Carolina Islands were at this point part of, uh, I think, a U.S. trust. You know, the later achieving uh, independence, et cetera, et cetera. But, but these were not as remote of a location as it would seem today. And the film was shot there. You know, I just had a passing minor thought. If anybody out there listening to this is a fan of the show Survivor, you've huh. seen these same islands in a more modern context. Because <laughs> oh, they shoot funny. there all the time. They shoot there in, in Yap. Yeah. Which is probably, as a kid, I had learned of this story and became fascinated with that there was an island named Yap. You know? And the fact that there was a fortune to be made in that coconut fortune. oil. Yeah, coconut, copra. I'll do the plot now, then I'll make my okay, comment please. about his performance. Yes. 
He plays a, a sailor who gets mm-hmm. shipwrecked, a captain. His yes. ship mutinies. He gets shipwrecked. He's brought back to health on the island of Yap, notices all their coconuts, and is like, sees an immediate great opportunity. Yeah. But the native people, in my opinion, correctly say nay to work. <laughs> they sure did. They had a different culture. And there was a German missionary, or he, was a, he wasn't was a missionary. He wasn't a missionary. It was the German work, trading house. Tra- he for the ran trading the house. German trading house. Right. And, uh, and he couldn't get any work right. out of this. And people. being being Gosh. a hero tale, O'Keefe sets out to return to this island and bring it to prominence and create his commercial empire. And he succeeds, but at what cost? Perhaps his soul. Yeah. You're rooting for him the whole time. And I mean this is And a, it's it's also a swashbuckler. It's an international I mean, swashbuckler. There's pirates, there's fights, e- there's economy. swinging on ropes. You learn about Capra. And this was the thing I was gonna say about his performance. And Watching coins. him in this film, because it is sort of a glossy epic story with a heart, but his performance, I was like, Wow, you know, I didn't realize what a transitional performer Burt Lancaster was. Huh. Because he really is Half right. in the old golden yeah. age Hollywood, and half very much a modern actor. That's very and he does it both at the same time. That was really, if you look at at his work, because he came up at Paramount, Hal Wallace, the studio system, and then came to Warner Brothers, made films on his own, was working at other studios. Two years before this, he was in Come Back, Little Sheba, opposite. Shirley Booth in a stark black and white drama playing a character totally against type. He was trying to be like, you know, it was uh, somewhat maybe a little bit miscast, but you believed him as a, a frumpy, you know, living with Shirley Booth. He's very moving in that film, but this is what he was known for in films that followed like trapeze or westerns like Vera Cruz. I mean, he was just a superstar during the 50s and 60s, and of course, earned the Oscar for Elma Gantry in 1960. But what a mighty talent. And this is a great example of a lesser-known film that was a big hit when it came out and really was the kind of movie that you went to see in a theater because it offered you something you couldn't see on your little black-and-white television. And, Absolutely. you know, if you're a fan of this film, you can check out Local Hero on Warner Archive Instant. That's right. Which oh. co-stars someone named Peter Capaldi, who you want to pay attention to. And, and another Peter, too, you, Peter Rieger. Yeah. Now you just successfully bridged Golden Age swashbuckling films all the way to, to the, Doctor Who. To, to <laughs> the future. <laughs> Well, next he, he, year. Does, he does have a TARDIS, so, you know. It's Time and space. Dan, Dan <laughs> travels very quickly. <laughs> All right, well. So, speaking of Warner Archive Instant, let's talk about some of the new films or favorite films that are in our new streaming service, which you can try, a two-week free trial, WarnerArchiveInstant.com. And remember that if you have a Roku streaming device, you can see most of the films in spectacular HD. And we have films and television programming available with new things being added constantly. Well, George, why don't you start? Well, I want to talk about television, and I want to talk about television that we've talked about before, but the ability to watch it in high definition, and that is Medical Center. Ah. The fact that we have season one episodes now up on Warner Archive Instant streaming in HD, and we remastered the series two years ago when we started releasing season one on DVD, and I thought the DVDs looked great, and indeed they do. And I love this series, but to watch these masters in HD 
is really um, remarkable. And this is television, episodic television. Seeing episodic television from 1969 in high def is virtually impossible it, it, as nobody, unless it's yeah. Star Trek. Nobody intended you to watch them this no, way. No, but they but look gorgeous. They look really good. The colors like, are amazing. Because I've thought about this because when you've watched the film of the old Star Treks or I've seen 16 millimeters of, of Batman, I think that in some way I almost feel like they oversaturated some of the colors because when, you know, they knew it would be muted down by the time the it went, color twice. went through NTSC. <laughs> and... On a modern system, it just pops. It just yeah. like really comes alive, and 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 it gives it a sense of depth that you know, like they knew nobody was really ever going to see this, you know. So it's almost like revealing a hidden treasure. It really is, and uh, the quality of the series itself. We've spoken of many times as we just released season three on DVD, and we'll start work soon on season four as we remaster the whole series. But Chad Everett, James Daly, with a great group of supporting actors. Um, Mercedes McCambridge is particularly moving in one of these episodes. But all in all, for a different side of Warner Archive Instant, this is the first series we've added that's high definition, and there will be more. Speaking of television, one of the most <laughs> beloved Saturday morning stars uh -huh. was Rockney. Tarkington of Danger Island on the Banana Split Show. Oh, I and yes. many children would walk around saying, uh-oh, Chongo. And he just happens to be the lead in a fine piece of cerebral cinema <laughs> known as Black Samson. Yes. Was, what you need <laughs> to know about Black Samson is the film's tagline is one of the greatest ever written, which is every brother's friend, every mother's enemy. <laughs> <laughs> and he plays a nightclub owner who has a lion. Yes. And just says no to drugs. Well, let's take Samson, the biblical figure. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and go all the way to the island of Rhodes in the middle of the Aegean, which in the Ptolemy era of pre, pre-Roman pre dominance. One of the wonders of the world was in Rhodes, was it not? Yes, it, well, I was getting to that. And one of the wonders of modern cinema worked on this film. Yes, the Colossus of Rhodes from 1961 was directed by Sergio Leone. A Western to Italian filmmakers is what ancient history, or what a Western is to America, I'm sorry, is ancient history to an Italian. And as somebody who, and I know Dan, you do too, I love ancient history and it's just kind of fun to see like these very fun, historically, horribly inaccurate views of ancient history as done in a, in a low-budget way. And it has not been directed by Sergio and had been like the other sword and sandal films yeah. in our library, like The Slave or Hercules, Samson, and Ulysses. It probably never would have gotten a retail DVD release as part of our Cult Camp Classic series a couple of years ago. But... That pedigree allowed us to remaster and release sure. it at the time. And it looks but great. Now you can see it streaming. Okay. In and, and, and it stars one of our, our favorite boys, Rory Calhoun. Oh, it does have Rory. It features some ancient battles, betrayal, and the, an interesting take on the uh, one of the seven wonders of the world where they kind of turned it into a uh, giant fighting robot. Yes, if you're a fan of the Daimajin uh, kaiju movies, you or would love... Or Pacific Rim. Or Pacific Rim. <laughs> this, that's where I'm just tired. There is no Pacific Johnny Rim. Sacco no. in Colossus no. of Rose. No, but, 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 but no historical account 
that I, I was very surprised ever talked about the, the fact that movie. it was a weapon of mass destruction. <laughs> and how. Yeah, I just remember I first uh, was exposed to this film. The Autry a number of years ago uh-huh. had a Sergio Leone exhibit. Oh. I went in there for the Western, right? But they were screening and stuff, okay. and I I got caught up by Colossus. He Rhodes. didn't make that many films, yeah. so this no. has a unique place in his filmography, which enabled us to make it available and now streaming. It's part of Warner Archive Instant, wide so, screen and in spectacular shape too. Would imagine so. We're always adding new features and television programs to Warner Archive Instant. And uh, we urge you, if you have yet to do so, to try it out at WaterArchiveInstant.com or InstantWaterArchive.com. So it wouldn't be a podcast without a letter. And Matt, do you have letters for us today? We do have one letter from Jimmy from Saraland, Alabama. That's shocking. (laughs) Hi, Jimmy. I can't believe it. (laughs) Hey, I've got an idea. I've got a little bit of time today. Why don't I just think of something I'd like to ask these three people I'm listening to right now and jot it down on a piece of paper, find a stamp, slap it on, and send it to Warner Archive Collection, B160-8, 3400 Riverside Drive, Burbank, California, 91522. And now on to our Jimmy. By the way, uh, like uh, last week we did a Reddit AMA. I just wanted to mention that, which was a lot of fun because we realized it was like we got a whole bunch of letters for the podcast, but George answered them with one hand typing like three hours. It was like 200 questions. Yeah. And what does AMA stand for? Ask Ask me me anything. anything. And you can ask us anything here. but In a letter with a forever stamp and a stamp self-addressed envelope. This is a a three-pager. And it's in Technicolor. It is in multiple crayon colors. Warner Archive. A few years ago, Warner Home Video had released the first season of Mama's Family. I've always been a fan of that show. But I was disappointed that only the episodes uh, as they are in syndicated reruns and not the complete episodes as originally aired. Are the episodes and the other seasons going to be released? Well, look at the date of that letter. It is from 515, yeah. Since then, Warner Brothers has joined forces with the production company and worked with Time Life, and uh, the whole series is now available from them in its original The whole kit and caboodle. That's great. But also, you know, when he talks about syndicated versus non-syndicated right. versions, that's a, an issue that we come up against all right. the time. In the case of Mama's Family, it's an interesting thing because this is not something that was produced in-house. Ah. This was a, a production licensing acquisition situation, different from something like Alice or Night Court, which we own outright. He said, also another title that comes to mind is The Man Who Played God with George Arliss. I thought of this after the recent release of Sincerely Yours, and I understand that that was a remake of The Man Who Played God. Thanks for the great releases and for Warner Archive Instant. Well, we'll just talk about The Man Who Played God because it does let us know that George Arliss was integral in developing the career of Betty Davis at Warner Brothers. And uh, I think we've talked about George R. this before. Yeah. yeah. The Man Who Played God is currently uh, existing in a rather awful master that you could see on television, and that is not good enough for us to put on DVD. So we will be remastering that film at some point and providing it to you. I have no idea when because we haven't even started working on it. 
but uh, new film elements are currently being manufactured in the laboratory and uh, we'll be doing that. But another teaming of Mr. Arliss and Ms. Davis has gone through this process and will be arriving soon. So we'll be talking about that on a future podcast. Quick, to the IMDb. So would you say that maybe our technicians are the men who play God with these films to decide what to create? I would say that, Archangels. I would say that everybody that works at Warner Brothers Motion Picture Imaging is godlike in their <laughs> talents and uh, and kindness, and we really love all of our colleagues over there. They do amazing work. All right. Well, that wraps up the letters, and it wraps up the podcast as we celebrate those eight back on DVD releases from Warner Archive. We'll be back soon with another Warner Archive Collection podcast. Fear not, we are always preparing new releases to come to you on DVD, on Blu-ray, and being added to Warner Archive Instant. So we've got lots of exciting things in store, so make sure you look out for the next podcast. In the meantime, I'm George Feltenstein. I'm Matt Patterson. My cobble, my lad. <laughs> and we thank you for listening and look forward to the next Warner Archive Collection podcast. <laughs>